Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 323, and I had a conversation with Dove Barron. This is Dove's second appearance on the show. Check out episode 293 for his first one. Dove goes into more detail on this one about emotional source codes, how we identify ourselves, and why we're drawn to particular groups or ideologies. Uh, We also discuss the time he fell off a mountain and the emotional and physical trauma that ensued from that and how it was a turning point for him in his life. If you want to check out other episodes that are around this topic, I suggest episode 299 with Dr. Aprilia West, episode 270 with Dr. Moran Cerf, and episode 134 with Vanessa Londino. If you want to listen to older episodes of Hey Human and can't find them on your apps that hold only 300 at a time, you can go to blueberry.com, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, for all the episodes. You can also visit heyhumanpodcast.com, and you can click episode links on either the podcast section or the human section on the site. And again, all the episodes are there. I don't know why the algorithms are so frustrating and only do 300 at a time, but that's just the way it goes, unless you're super famous or something. Okay, in other news, check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show, susanruth.com to learn more about me, and please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Also, please check out my new relationships and sex show. It's called Are We There Yet? with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. The show is on YouTube under youtube.com slash show. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Be well. Be kind. Please take care of each other. All right, here we go. Dove Baron, welcome back to Hey Human. Hey, it is my absolute pleasure. I'm excited to be back. Thank you. Yes, uh, it's so good to see you as always. I got to <laughs> say on the last time you were on the show, I received so much wonderful feedback all across emails, texts, people running into me outside in the world. Uh, it really touched a chord. So I appreciate that. I appreciate you spending time with me then and now. Well, I, I'm I'm really glad that it that it resonated with people. Um, you know, you know this as much as I do because I have two podcasts too. Um, it can be kind of a, an echo chamber. You don't really know, like, you know, is anybody like listening? I mean, you know, by the numbers, but does anybody, is there, is it having an impact? And, and we both want that. We want to make sure that what's being delivered is resonating with people. And that's why I say, you know, I encourage people to write in, write to the host and say, hey, this was a great show, or I hated it. That's fine. At least that the host knows then I need more of this or less of that. And so to hear that it was a was a hit for people and it and it hit home and there was something in it that resonated for them, I'm delighted with that. And if there's something else I can do to serve, let's find, let's dig into that. Wherever you need to go, I'm here to serve. I'm glad I'm not the only one that sometimes wonders if what the point of it all is because I do have those moments. It takes a lot of work, you know, and then you think, is this all for nothing? Do people care? You know, is it, is it all just me 
you know, echoing, as you said, into the wind. I yeah, know I it's think, not that I just, but no. it's hard to get out of your yeah, head. It, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's a passive thing, right? It's a one-way system. Like, so, you know, if you're doing a TV show and you go, oh, you know, we had, you know, we could tell we had 1 million views, right? That's great. But does that mean anybody liked it? I don't know. Um, with a radio show, it's even more. With a podcast, it's even more. So it's it's such a one-way system that, you know, we're kind of guessing, is this what you resonates with you? And so the answer, obviously, has to become, well, if I, I'm, am I going to be true to my soul in having this guest on? Am I going to be true to my soul in my conversation with this guest? And how will that touch the hearts and souls of others is what I hope for. And... Again, when people reach out to you directly, Susan, and say to you, this was impactful, you know, you had this lady on, she spoke about this, it was, it really brought this home for me, or you had that guy on, and it really made me think about that, that for, for us, that's like, that's the, that's the ultimate high five, that's beautiful. Yeah, and those reviews, when people take the time to review. Yeah, I'm always praying for the the rating and the reviews because that makes a big difference at Apple and all the rest of those places, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how have you been? What's new in your world? Um, I have been really good. Uh, I am finally traveling again. So I've been, I was in LA at the uh, neuroscience conference, um, which was wonderful. And I uh, got to hang out with some of my friends from that world. And then from there, I was recently in Minnesota. Uh, well, it's not actually Minnesota. Nothing's in Minnesota. Everything's a good while out of that. I actually joked from stage and said, did somebody just stick a pin in a map and hope for the best? Because the closest place is an hour and a half away. Um, but I was there, and I was speaking at the National Leadership and Development Conference uh, for the Millilax tribe. And so it was First Nations it was wonderful. It was wonderful to be around those people and the, the culture and the dancing and the singing, and it was just great. So that's, that's the start, and now I'm working on my new book, as you know, which is all around emotional source code and working out how to deliver that in a way that's consumable. <laughs> I can go on for a couple of hundred years and yeah. still never get there. So. Do you find that, that people can wrap their head around? The, for those that are just now tuning in maybe haven't heard your your first episode which please go back and listen if you haven't heard it um explain what source code is okay uh simplicity of it is to think about that when so think of using the analogy of dna you have dna now you and i we all know you can't change your dna it's what you got it's identifiable it's what will get you off on a murder case very often right so your dna is your dna however we used to believe uh, pre the genome project we used to believe that the, the dna you have determines all things in your life how you look of course but also your behaviors and your propensity for illnesses now what we know is that that's still true, but, and the but is something called epigenetics. And epigenetics is the, the environment that a cell is in, the environment that the gene is in, determines whether that gene is turned on or off, whether, whether it's, so if it has a propensity for kidney disease, is that gene on or off? So the environment determines that. 
not the actual gene, but the environment. So now let's come bring that back to emotional source code. You have emotional source code. That's what you got. Okay, it's like your genes. You got it. But out of that is the environment that, de de that determines what we call your anatomy of meaning. That's how the emotional source code works for you. So if you, you know, we talked about my childhood. Now that was last time. And again, if you didn't hear that, go back and have a listen. You probably don't want all the gory details, but there was some iffy stuff going on in there. And so my childhood, I have the genes that I get, but the environment, the emotional genes, meaning the, the uh, emotional source code, but the environment I get determines my anatomy of meaning. And the anatomy of meaning determines how I see the world. Now, here's what's interesting about it. The anatomy of meaning gives me my identity. My identity determines my beliefs, and my beliefs determine my behavior. So now let's look at that backwards. You go, well, I want to change this behavior. I have this shitty behavior. I don't want to do it anymore. And somebody says to you, well, you got to look at the beliefs. Great. So you look at the beliefs, and you, so why is it not changing? I think I've done the work on my beliefs. I did some belief change work. I worked with some great people. Why is it not changing? Because your beliefs will never change until you address your identity. And so this is why the transformational moment for people in their lives is what we often call the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is, quote, an identity crisis. I'm questioning my identity. I don't know who I am anymore. This is, feels like the worst thing on the planet, but it's actually the best thing. Because now if I, cha if I challenge my identity, I can look at, well, how did I form this identity? It was formed out of my anatomy of meaning that came from my emotional source code. So from the bottom up, it's emotional source code, anatomy of meaning, identity, beliefs, behaviors. Going down, it's your behaviors are determined by your beliefs. Your beliefs are determined by your identity. Your identity is determined by your anatomy of meaning. Your anatomy of meaning is determined by your emotional source code. As we step into what looks like some chaos all around us with with what's happening between wars and poverty and racism and mm -hmm. elitism and a government that seems to not have our best interest at heart. Those are things outside of us, mm -hmm. right? So how we deal with those things outside of us, though, have deep, deep, deep rooted experiential meaning right? Like depending on how our parents were and how our friends were. And so how do we face that stuff without having to go down so deeply into the onion that right. we become raw? <clears throat> um, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with getting raw, but I don't either, uh, but I don't think it's uh, an easy thing for people. No, just it's not. You're back. absolutely right. It's not. So uh, now we have to look at this in two different frameworks. So in the, in, we just talked about the personal process of how you stack but your nation has that your organization has that so you know you and i talked about last time that a little bit that there is uh, an emotional source code for america and and that emotional source code is from where it began and the native meaning that came out of that and what is the identity of this country and then as a result what are the beliefs that the country has nationally these are national beliefs about what is america right and these are our behaviors because we're America. We're going to protect our guns because we're American, right? Um, and so I always say to people, don't try and take people's guns away. It's part of their identity. You can't do that. 
you can do healthier things with those guns and you can transform the meaning of them so that the identity shifts a little bit. But if you try to do it backwards, it won't work. So there is a national emotional source code, a national anatomy of meaning. When I say national, any nation, Russia, China, Britain, America, whatever you want to call it, right? Now you've got your own and those two are now interacting. So you're now in the world experiencing these things. So you go, let's say you're in my age bracket that you're a baby boomer and you're going, well, what is Russia? Well, the emotional source code of Russia to a baby boomer is the enemy. They are the enemy. They're, they're, they're the nuclear threat when I was a kid. Like there were movies made about nuclear holocausts with America and, and Russia going to war. That's not even been on the planet, that idea, for two generations. Two generations grew up without, even that, without that even being considered. It's like, nah, it's fine. We don't need to spend money on defense. Russians are fine. It'll be okay. And then the Ukraine thing happens. But then you have to look at, well, okay, that's fine. Now we've got our emotional source code of how we look at that Russia. But then we've got the, first of all, we've got the rhetoric, which is fed to us by the media or our governments. And then on top of that, we've also got what is the emotional source code of that nation? What is the emotional source code of its leader? So I did a profile, I think you know that I did a profile, you can find it on DovBaron.com, it's a free uh, report, and I built the emotional source code of Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin came up during the KGB world, during old Russia, and for him it was a great loss that Russia stopped being the USSR and became just Russia. And his goal has always been to bring it back, that's always been it, but when you examine it at a at a uh, emotional source code for him, why has he gone to war with the Ukraine? Well, there's a couple of pieces of that. In his reality, remember when he was a kid, Ukraine and Russia were one place. They weren't separate. So that's number one. Number two is when you look at that, the enemy was America, and out of the Second World War came NATO. Putin sees NATO as the puppet of America. NATO were on five of his borders. And what people don't know about the Ukraine, and let me say this as a, as a preface, I am in no way in favor of Russia invading the Ukraine. But it was not unprovoked. You just got to know that. If you don't believe me, and I'm not asking you to believe me, I'm asking you to go do the research. It was not unprovoked. Again, I'm not in favor of Russia invading uh, Ukraine. But the Ukraine had 30,000 soldiers on, on the Russian border. So now you've got five NATO nations on the border of your country, and you've got 30,000 Ukrainian soldiers on the border of your country, and that country is saying, we're going to join NATO I think you might feel a little anxious, you as a human being might feel a little anxious if, you know, you had people standing outside of your house who you thought were the enemy and they never left. That would cause a sense of anxiety and a sense of threat. So now you go to another level of understanding of this. Now let me start looking at other things in the world. We can step back and we can go, okay, 
this is not the rhetoric I'm being shown on TV. This is not the rhetoric I'm being told on the news. This is not even the rhetoric I might have believed in my own head. I can examine things at a deeper level. So what drives this country? What drives that leader? What drives this company, this organization? Right? So I go in and do this for companies. And they are shocked to go, well, yeah, of course, that's exactly what drives us. But can you see how you've varied right away from it? We have. Yeah, we've, we've lost our identity. We've moved off in a completely different direction. And this is why there's so much turmoil inside the organization. So this is why this is so powerful. It, it heals the human being and gives us immense compassion. It heals organizations and it can heal nations. And the, if you get down to the truth of it, where we're at is the turmoil in the world is down to, in my opinion, down to one thing that spreads into many things. And that one thing is we've lost meaning. We know the world is not religious or, or considerably less religious than it ever was. And I'm not saying that's the right meaning. I'm just saying it gave people meaning. People don't trust their governments. They've lost meaning. And they've gotten caught in, as we all have, in the consumer neo-capitalist world and saying this is who I am. And when that becomes under threat, i.e. 2008, and now, as you and I record this, the, the potential for a recession, we've got inflation, etc., people go, oh, who am I? I don't know who I am anymore. My house could go away. My cars could go away. So we're in an identity crisis. Again, dark night of the soul, good thing, feels bad. I think it's interesting. You know, I look at the American flag as a good example of this, what you're just talking about, and that here is a thing that had meaning. Yes. And then a group of people have given it hyper meaning and in giving it hyper meaning, it has taken away even more meaning for the other half of the people. It's, it's, it's very well said. Yeah. This the irony of it all. And I think that well, it's, it's been co-opt. This is the challenge, right? Yeah. It gets co-opt. So, you know, we talked about last time that what is the emotional source code of the U S and it oftentimes in a nation will come down to one word. So the emotional source code of the United States, in one word, is freedom. That's what it is. It's freedom. So the challenge with that is whoever uses that can co-opt. So, you know, they are looking to take away our freedom and our democracy. We have to storm the Capitol. The people who stormed the Capitol were not crazy people. Were there some crazies? Sure. But there's some crazies in Walmart. There's some crazies at Whole Foods. You know, I mean, it's not about that. If you or I went into that crowd and asked anybody there, are you a patriot today? They would say yes. Every single one of them. Because they were co-opted around this word freedom and individuality. I have my rights. No place in the world says that. It's the individuality and freedom that are tied together that become the national leverage point for sometimes very bad players. Which is wild because there are plenty of free countries on this planet. Of course. But, but the freedom American... index has gone down. Yeah, yes. Globally. 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 I've actually sure. just written about this research. Yeah, I just yeah. read about some of that, that the, yeah. that the world is less free than it's ever been. Yes, than it's been in the last 45 years. Is that I mean, a policy at... to go backwards like that? It seems bonkers. No. Well, this is because human beings will get caught in the surface. And what I mean by that, again, capitalism, et cetera, 
Um, and by the way, I'm a capitalist, so let's not get, let's not pretend I'm Are we all? Totally turned into Marx. Um, yeah. No, um, but I'm a compassionate capitalist. I want to care about the people, the rest of the people in the world. Um, but if you get caught in that and you start identifying with that, you start losing perspective and you lose compassion, you lose empathy and all those kinds of things. So when we looking at the world through that lens, we've lost a sense of our own meaning. And then it's easy to be dismissive of other people. And so we don't notice. So, you know, the question is, is do we go backwards? Well, here's the truth. Um, the world politically really doesn't mind a, a touch of amnesia, right? I mean, let, let's just face it. Like, so here's a great example. There was a campaign, and the campaign's uh, tagline was, make America great again. Okay, when is the again? Right, so I want to know the point you're referencing to because, you know, I don't know when it is. Is it Pleasantville? It, it, the truth of the matter is, again, is a reference point to a mythical place. It's not a real place. By the way, let's remember that Ronald Reagan said, let's make America great again. It was his, it was his first. Which point was he referring to? I'm not sure. I, I, I suspect that Trump might have been referencing Reagan's times. What was Reagan referencing? So you've got these problems with this amnesia, and, then a, on a, and that expands out onto a global stage. Let's look at, I'm old enough to remember, Ferdinand and, and uh, his missus, <laughs> the dictator, Marcoses, of the Philippines. I remember them very well. I remember that they stole somewhere between five and ten billion. I mean, when you can't work out if it's five, six, seven, eight, nine, or ten billion, you know they stole a lot of money, right? And Bong Bong, their son, was just made the president of the Philippines. And how is it done? It's done by restructuring history. They are telling the story that during that dictatorship, the Philippines was the best it's ever been. It's not true. So this is the challenge. It's not that we're going backwards. It's that we're not thinking deeply enough to examine the rhetoric, that we don't step into, hold on, is this true? Is this actually true? And that's why I said to you last time, I watch Al Jazeera. I watch the BBC. I watch Fox. I watch CNN. I watch the left, the right, and everything international because I don't want to be perverted by the rhetoric. So I don't know that it's, I think when you say, is it normal that we go backwards? I think very much we return to comfort and comfort is not a place. It's, it's an imaginary place, a mythical place, like let's make America great again. It's the so, great and powerful Oz. And all it takes is a little bit of curtain pulling to realize that it was never a real thing. No, it was never it's like a real It's thing. a mass hypnosis. That's exactly what it is. Right, and it's a it's a mass hypnosis on we will make you happy, and happiness is the greatest trick drug in the universe. Happiness is fleeting at best; it doesn't exist. If I come to you and tickle you and you laugh, you say you're happy. I stop, you stop laughing. Suddenly, you're not happy. So, what does that mean? 
It means happiness is an external force. Joy is not. Compassion is not. Purpose, meaning, fulfillment are not. So I'm not, I on my journey, I'm not anywhere focused on happiness. But I am focused on joy. I am focused on being of service. I am focused on being of purpose and living a life of meaning. And those people to me are the ones who seem to walk around pretty happy, but not because they're focused on it. Whereas the people who are focused on happy are going to snort another line or they're going to smoke another doobie or they're going to have another drink. And by the way, again, I'm not judging you if you want to snort a line, smoke a doobie. I'm not here to judge any of that. That's, That's fine. I'm not anti-anything, but I am saying if you're following a circular path that keeps taking you back to the same point, you might want to get off the path. Also, having it be external like that makes it much easier to assign blame outside of oneself Well, this for is why the you're not part. happy. Well, this is the other part of the addiction, right, is that if you look at those who promise this um, – non-tangible, elusive happiness, it always gives a place to blame. It's their fault. It's the Mexicans. They're coming in as rapists or criminals. It's the the drug users in the Philippines. So we just got to shoot them all, which was under under Rodrigo, which was the last, right? Um, You know, it's... It's the nationalist groups. If you have somebody to blame, then you can say, we'll be happy when. That line... If you, I, know, I want you to just stop as you listen right now and ask yourself that line. How many times have you used that line? I'll just be happy when. I'll be happy when I get out of college. Or I'll be happy when I get out of this house. You know, and stop having to follow your rules. I'll be happy when I go to college and I've got some freedom. Well, I'll be happy when I'm done with college because this is exhausting and it's too hard. I'll be happy when I get a job. Okay, so you got a job. Well, I'll be happy when I get a raise and I get a promotion. I'll be happy when I find somebody and I can have a relationship. I'll be happy when we get married. I'll be happy when we have kids. I'll be happy when the kids leave this house because they're driving me insane and they just get out. Uh, oh, and I'll be happy when we have grandkids. Uh, and, and, you know, I, and now I'll be happy just when I'm dead. I mean, this is just too much. So we're, it's, it's a constant delay of joy. As opposed to where in the present can I be not superficially grateful, because that's bullshit too, but just like what in my life has the deepest value that I'm not paying attention to? Not, you know, walking around, oh, I'm so grateful. I write down my gratitudes every day. Shut up. Like, shut up. It's superficial, new age bullshit. Don't care about it. Sorry, I know I probably offended somebody there, but stop. Stop with the superficial and go to the truth. Go to where I'm unhappy, where I feel ungrateful, because that will reveal to you what you need to work on so that you can feel gratitude. Every, every time, you know this because you and I communicate, my email signs off, and the sign-off is with gratitude. Right? It says with gratitude. I started, there's other things on there, but one of the things is gratitude. And I put that on when I hit the wall in 2008 when I just invested 85 grand that I borrowed into a product that I could not sell because it came out the day CNN announced there was a recession. And actually, I've been spending my Saturdays in the last few months cleaning out the freaking storage locker that's got that stock in that my wife's like, just throw it away. <laughs> right? 
I'll be happy when it's it's a bad path. Uh, I remember the day that I uh, went through my CDs that I had made because nobody buys really CDs anymore. And I nope. held on to those fuckers for so long. Oh, yeah. And I remember the day going to the storage locker <laughs> and getting, you know, the 10 billion boxes. It seemed like it was like 10 boxes of CDs and going to the dumpster. I took one out of each as a memory. Yep. And. I said sayonara to the rest, dumped it, and it was such a weird feeling. Yeah, it is. I was sad. I was mad. I was relieved. I was all these mixed bag. All these things at once, but it it also created that that idea of freedom that we talked about. Because freedom isn't in a flag. It isn't an external thing. It's absolutely inside of us. And it's interesting that you you know what you just said there because freedom is. The lack of attachment. And again, you know, you know, I studied Buddhism and spent time with Buddhist monks. But lack of attachment is not having nothing, which is what, what as Westerners tend to think it is. It's not having nothing, it's just not being attached to it. Like, you know, I, I have a car that I wanted all my life. And people go, oh, you must be very, I'm not attached to it at all. I haven't driven it in two years, right? Um, I thought about selling it. I'm happy to sell it. And I spoke to somebody who is a collector of those, that particular car. And he said, Oh no, keep it for 10 years. If you keep it for 10 years and drive around the car park in between, you'd be selling it as a, as a vintage car. And I said, I don't even care about that. And he goes, do you like driving? I go, yeah. He goes, then keep it. I just like driving it. It's, it's not, but it's not an attachment. Like we get attached to things again, because we set, we hook our happiness into it. Right. So, you know, my, the things I'm throwing out are DVDs, CDs, um, uh, manuals, you know, all those are PDFs now. So manuals that are in binders, you know, all these things and beautiful boxes that I had made that were branded boxes in high gloss. And, you know, I mean, it cost me a lot of money. Right? And I'm like, yep, give them away, throw them away, whatever you have to do. They're in the recycle bin. Okay. Because the thing only has value if it has value. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. I remember my parents, I was helping them uh, clean out their basement, which was an undertaking. And my father's <laughs> always complaining that my mother is the hoarder, which she is, mm-hmm. but dad is also is, has a share of stuff. I remember going through some of his folders, his file folders. I said, dad, you know, you haven't been a professor at the university for 30 years, maybe, or 20 years. Maybe it's okay to we can get rid of this stuff, all your student files and all this stuff. And he said, oh, no, no, I, I, I have to hold on to that stuff. Why, Dad? He said, well, you don't understand. I said, well, explain it to me. I, I want to understand. Why do you need to hold on to, you know, floppy disks and CD-ROMs and files, papers written by students from 30 years ago, you know, from, and he said, because all this stuff is who I am. Right. And I said, Identity. wow, that is a major statement. I said, Papa, I'm telling you, it's not who you are. But if that's what you believe, then we won't throw this stuff away and it's okay. But that was that, so interesting to me. We're right back to where, where we started, which is identity. When you threaten somebody's identity, it is the most major thing you can do. People will defend their identity to the death. Absolutely. Right. So I will say to people all the time, okay, let me ask you, what's the most important thing in life? And they'll say life, life itself. 
right? You know, particularly if you ask a conservative who's now fighting abortion. What's the most important thing in life? Uh, life. Okay. So you're, so let's just examine that one for a minute. Um, so you're no longer willing to uh, have the death penalty. And they go, no, no, that's really, well, that's life. But I, then I'll say, but there's something more important to life that, to you. And they go, what? And I say, well, let's look at this example. If the most important thing in life is life, right? If that is the truth, then how do you explain that somebody will strap a bomb to themselves and blow themselves up in the name of something? And they go, well, they're crazy. Well, I can sit you down with them and you'll see they're not crazy at all. Because I have met them and they're not crazy. And they go, well, I, I just don't understand. No, you don't. Because the thing that's more important than life is identity. People will die for an identity. They will strap a bomb to themselves for their identity. The identity is the ultimate addiction. And so if you say, I'm not this, I will kill you. Not I personally, Dove Baron, but you know, this is how people feel. I will kill you. People will fly into a blind rage at a threat to their identity. This is what's so fascinating to me about the last eight years in that I feel like so many people who did not have this particular identity have then been handed an identity uh, of, of this, to me, just way over the top uh, experiential behavior. And they have taken it as, as if they'd always been that way. And that's well, really get, interesting to me, which is a very much like a cult, right? That's how cults operate. But now we're back to what I said before, right? Is you can co-op meaning. Mm -hmm. When you co-op meaning, you, you control identity. It's very simple. Right? So if I can co-op the meaning, I can. So uh, you and I talked about uh, last time that I, I studied cult psychology and had some people I knew very well. The girl who used to work for me was a, uh, I forgot what they're called now, uh, the uh, Hare Krishna. She was a Hare Krishna. Um, I had many uh, friends who had been sannyasins under Osho, and I even knew some people who were in the Nexus uh, thing, like really knew them well, like one of the guys I'd known him since he was 12. Um, so, you know, I knew, I knew, and I can always point out exactly what it is, is you have a sense of being not belonging and so we will give you an opportunity to fit in. Now, I want you to pay attention to this as I say this, because I th this is incredibly important. Human beings are tribal. We need to belong. Mm -hmm. You tell yourself, I'm a loner. I don't need people. You're full of shit. Sorry. You, you are. I, I know you believe that, but you also can't exist without, without other human beings. In fact, the psychological research will show that you will actually go insane. This is why the worst form of punishment is solitary confinement. This is my argument for why people are addicted to television because right. they are, if they, if they are isolating themselves one way, the television becomes a foster. It becomes Absolutely. the monkey, the wire monkey wrapped in a blanket. You got it. So many people who are lonely will come home and turn on the TV, even though they're not in that room. So they can hear voices. It's exactly mm -hmm. that reason. Mm -hmm. So these are people that who are understand, oh, I'm fine being alone. No, you're not. Sit in the room on your own for 10 minutes and don't move. 
Don't move. Don't turn on the music. Don't turn on the sound. Don't turn on TV. Don't write in your journal. Just sit and see if you can quieten your mind. Then you'll find out whether you're okay being alone. Most people are like, I can't do 10 minutes. Are you crazy? I can't do a minute. So when we, when we ignore the fact that we're tribal, by, by acknowledging that, we go, okay, I have a need to belong. When we ignore that, it doesn't go away, but it transform not transform, transmutes into, distorts into, I need to fit in. Belonging and fitting in are very different. Mm. I, uh, I am a fan of shirts. Right? I have a lot of nice shirts. That's one of my weaknesses. But I don't buy a shirt without trying to get rid of at least one, usually two. Why? Because I want my shirts to belong in that closet. If I make them fit in, they're going to get all wrinkled and get look crappy. We try to fit in, so we distort ourselves, we disenfranchise parts of ourselves, we distort ourselves to shove ourselves into this group to fit in. You're not made to fit in, you're made to belong. There's a place for you, but you have to show up non-disenfranchised. You have to bring back the disenfranchised parts of yourself you've given away in order to be with these people. Now, if you feel disenfranchised from the world and you feel like you don't belong and then someone comes along and says, we're listening to you, we're here for you, and hold on a second, let's give you a new meaning called freedom, but freedom actually means this in our world, then away you go. Away you go. I think I mentioned on the last show that I spoke at the United Nations um, and I spoke at the United Nations with Tony McAleer and Tony was... Uh, head of war, white Aryan race. He wanted to make Canada an all-white country. He went to the Supreme Court twice. He, he was the only person who went on to Montel Williams that Montel walked off on. Tony's a very, very good friend of mine. Um, and people go, a neo-Nazi is a friend of yours? Yeah, uh, because he's not that anymore. But they gave him a place where he fit in when he felt so abandoned by the world, by his own family and he wanted a voice and he wanted his creativity and he wa and so, yeah, it facilitated that. Tony has come back from that and now speaks at Holocaust museums and, you know, speaks at synagogues. You know, he's, I, I spoke at the local shul with him here in Vancouver. Um, and as I said, we spoke at the UN about de-radicalizing the right wing. Um, but that was because he needed to fit in. Not because he was a bad person. And so when I look at those people who marched on the, uh, on the Capitol, I can't see bad people. I can see people who were under a mass hypnosis, given to them by a rhetoric that sold them a false idea of what freedom is, using the emotional source code, and gave them a place to fit in. But as you're seeing from the January 6th, um, hearings. I mean, I saw one last week, a wonderful man stood up and said, you know, yeah, I was there because they were going to reveal how the election was stolen. That was what we were going to see. There was no evidence of that. We never saw that. But you get caught up in the swell of that. And they said, well, why did you march on the Capitol? Because the, because the president asked us to. That is not a crazy person. That's Maybe somebody who's not thinking deep enough, sure, I'll give you that, but it's not a crazy person. And, yeah, you know, and I think a lot of times people say, oh, only only ignorant, stupid people are 
are falling for this. It's like, nope, sorry to break it to you, but some very bright people also believe this stuff. Or maybe they don't believe it for real, but they're going to pretend they believe it because it makes them a shit ton of money. Of course. Of course. So this is the thing is that it works. Um, and, you know, I wrote recently that every, you know, I was writing about Russia and the Ukraine. And I said every soldier on every side and every civilian who dies dies due to the rhetoric of the puppeteers mm-hmm. under the, and this is it under the name of patriotism. So really we need to really question what is patriotic. See, for me, a patriot is somebody who questions their government. That's what a patriot is. I believe in my country and because I believe in my country as a democratic country, I will question my government. That is patriotic. I will not go along with them. I will question them. I don't need to carry a gun to question them. I will question them. I will challenge their ideas. I will challenge their their rhetoric. I will challenge their policies. And because vote I'm a, in the smallest to the largest of elections, from the right. local to the major ones. Right, because I'm a patriot. I will not go along with because I'm a patriot. I will not march against or... Um, take arms up against someone because I'm a patriot. No, no. We have to find a way to come together. We have to find a way, you know, this, you and I have this in common. It's a big thing about our shows is I want people on my show. I disagree with. Absolutely. I don't want to convince them. And I know they're not going to convince me, but I want to hear them. I want to understand them. I want to find out what drives them. I want to have compassion. Yeah. And so, but not only is knowledge power, because sometimes we're given false knowledge, but the willingness to, you know, we talked about this last time. My religion is curiosity. Same. Right? My religion is curiosity. I used to say it's love, but that's kind of too, it's nebulous. (laughs) Well, it's nebulous, right? I mean, if I ask most people, what, what does love mean? They have no clue, really, truthfully. They don't know. But my religion is curiosity. So it would be against my faith to argue with you and make you wrong. I won't do that. So I want to argue with you and find out why you believe, but not to prove you wrong. And, and you can do the same to me. That would be great. But let's, let's, let's explore that so we have this conversation of souls. So there's this, this spiritual, intellectual intercourse that is orgasmic in its outcome that I am don't I may fade into you during a moment, you may fade into me during that moment, but we 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 evolve from that as bigger, deeper, more meaningful human beings. But I'm not you and you're not me. Do you think it's possible to pull back from where we are as a society, as a nation, as a world? Ooh, you're asking the big ones, huh? Hey? Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting because I don't want to be uh, a pessimist. Um, I don't want to be an optimist. I want to be a realist. Um, and I, what I know about human psychology is this, that human beings rarely change without extreme pain. Um, the question is, when will we notice the pain? So the answer to your question is, when we notice the pain. So I fell off a mountain in June 1990. I fell 120 feet while free climbing. 
and got smashed to pieces. That was my wake-up call. Um, what people don't, well, most people don't know is that was my fourth fall. The first one was 70, 70 feet off a shale mountain in Western Australia. It was a shale mountain, so I didn't fall from the top to the bottom. I rolled down because it was a shale mountain. But, you know, it was pretty it was severe enough. I had two smaller falls, 25 feet and 15 feet after that, and then the big one was 120 feet. What point did I, what point did I say, did I stop saying, I'm tough, I'm fine, I'm coming back? How big does it have to be? How much pain do you have to be in to pay attention? How, how long have you been in this shitty relationship where you're being beat on, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever it is, and you keep making excuses because you're tough. Now, maybe your version of tough is, well, I'm just very loving and I'm very forgiving and I'm very caring and I'm very compassionate. No, you're full of shit. Your ego's in the way. You're calling your ego compassion. You're calling your ego forgiveness. That's your ego because you have an identity that says, I'm a loving person. No, you're a punch bag. Stop it. Or you've well, you've come to learn that somehow pain equals love, and so that and we talk about that on the show all the time. Is that yeah that you're just you're used to the comfort, even if the comfort is a negative comfort. Well, again, back to the emotional source code. If in your so we do a whole thing around love equations. So you can have a false bond and a false love equation. So if you have a false love equation, so if your dad beats on you every Tuesday and tells you he loves you. And the reason he's beating you is because he loves you. Then you're going to go, oh, beating equals love. Sure, that it's there's no there's no rationale to it. You see, because in your emotional source code, you have something called emotional logic. So in rational logic, two plus two equals four. In emotional logic, two plus two equals a giraffe, <laughs> or equals rage, or equals love, or equals horny, or equals whatever it equals. Because that's your equation. It's an emotional logic process, and you can't argue with it. So if you don't believe me, here's the, ask yourself this question. When did you do something where you went, why the hell would I do that? We've all done it. Like, even if, even if it wasn't in the, in the next minute, it might have been a year later, you go, why the hell was he in a relationship? Like, all the clues were there, he was a douchebag. Why did I stay in that? Because you have an emotional source code that has an equation that fit, fits love, and he, she matched that equation. And until you do that work, you go, oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, you can know. You can know. When my bride and I, uh, we'd been dating, I think, about three, four months. Uh, we've been married now for 25 years, but we've been dating a few months. And I'd met her roommates. She used to live in a house with some roommates. And she goes, oh, she calls me from work. And she goes, Colin called, one of her roommates. He'd like to go for dinner. And I said, oh, great. I like Colin. Colin, now, let me be clear. Colin was this really funny, uh, charismatic guy who was a douchebag. Like, he, if he could get up early in the morning, early enough in the morning, he would have fucked the crack of dawn. That's why I used to say about Colin, right? There was nothing that was not available to him, right? And he slept around a lot. And I said, yeah, I'd love to go for dinner with Colin. And she goes, yeah, he wants us to meet his girlfriend. And I go, girlfriend? Will it be the same one? Because he changes girlfriends twice a day. 
And she goes, no, no, apparently he's in love. So you can imagine how excited we were to meet this girl. Like, oh my God, some woman has a grip on Colin. Wow, we got to meet this chick. So we go for dinner. We have dinner with them. We had a great night. We had a lot of laughs. And we're on the drive home. And my wife said, what did you think of Jemima? And I said, oh, I thought she was so sexy. Because I'm not going to pretend, you know, I'm in a relationship. I'm not blind. And, and she says, really? I'm surprised you found her really sexy. I said, oh, yeah. And she goes, why? She says, I don't understand. Because I know you like women of color. And she's not. And I go, no, but she's Mediterranean. She's got a nice olive skin. She goes, okay. But you really like, like you find women of color really sexual, sexy. And I said, yeah, oh yeah. She's confused. So she says, I don't, don't understand. She goes, also, she's not curvy. And I know you like curvy women. And I said, uh-huh. But she's very athletic. She's got big sweeps in her quads. She's got round shoulders. You know, she's got that, that nice athletic look. And I find that sexy too. And she goes, Dove, I don't understand. You said you really find women of color sexy. And you really find curvy women sexy. And this woman is sexy. In, and she is that she's got the sweeps and she's got the olive skin. But you described her as really sexy. I don't understand. Why did you describe her as really sexy? And I said, oh, that's easy. And she said, what? I said, she's fucking nuts. And my wife looks at me and goes, what? A girlfriend at the time says, what? And I said, she says, so you're telling me if we weren't dating, you would date her? And I said, oh, no. But 15 years ago, I'd have married her. And she goes, why? I go, because she is my love equation. My mom was nuts. My mom was crazy. So, yes, I have an attraction to that. The only difference is because I've done the self-work, I can see what my love equation is, and I, don't ha I can recognize it and validate it and go, oh, yeah, totally sexy, but no thank you. Whereas before I'd done that work, I was like, I'm compelled. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? And I had those relationships with those nutty <laughs> girls. It's not their fault. Right. Cause I'm sure I fit that program too. <laughs> so, you know, that, so this is the thing. Love is an equation that exists inside of your emotional source code. It's not, it's not this oh, idea, you know, or we think it's physical. It is, but only to a degree. We think it's characteristic. It is, but it's only to a degree. It's a match in the emotional source code. And by the way, it's not gender specific. So mm -hmm. let me be clear. That girl I just described was like my mom. But the girl I dated before my wife, that girl was identical to my dad. It's not gender specific. Some of the women I dated were a mix of both. And to be honest, I can see the, both those characteristics in my wife. But the difference is my wife is doing her work and has done her work. She sees those traits and goes, eh, no thanks. Just as I have the traits of her. So I'll give you one more story that reflects on her emotional source code. We were, again, we'd been living together, just beginning to live together. And I'm a passionate guy. I'm sure it slid by everybody and nobody noticed. I'm a passionate guy. And so I'm in the kitchen, but I'm also a bit of a absent-minded professor. I'm, I'm in my own world thinking about deeper things a lot of the time. So I'm in the kitchen on my own 
Ren is in the living room. Ren's my wife. She's in the living room. And it's a kitchen that has no physical doors on it, just doorways. And I'm emptying the dishwasher. But being a dumbass, I haven't fully opened the cupboard door. I've got the cupboard door partially open as I'm putting the dishes in. So as I lean down to pick a dish up and I go to put it in, I smash my head on the door and and I go, and I, and I being passionate take my hand my fist and pound it onto the countertop by going and holding my head going fuck 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 really loud really loud and I see Ren glide into the kitchen doorway look at me like a deer in the headlights and then disappear. I realize I've triggered her. I have no idea why. And I'm like, what fuck? What? What? Like, I know I've upset her. What? And she can't speak. Right? She's already completely, totally shut down. I go into the living room. We start to talk. And we begin to unravel her emotional source code. Who is her dad? Again, not gender specific. It just happens to be that with this story. Her dad was a Christian minister. What do I do when she meets me? I speak on stages. I, I'm in the pulpit, quote-unquote. Her father's a Christian minister, and he was a very passionate Christian minister. He was an incredibly generous man who, you know, I used to refer to their home as Hotel Chandra. Nobody was turned away with food or, or a night's sleep. But he also had an insane temper insane temper and so if he he was a uh, a handyman and but he was a clumsy handyman so if he would do something and the screwdriver would slip and he would cut himself or a hammer would slip then all the five children got a beating and his wife got a beating mm -hmm. and when i say a beating i'm talking about tie him up hit him with a belt and stomp on his wife's back with his boots oh my god because of his own trauma and his own childhood, we can go into what that is. It doesn't, it's not relevant right now. So when my wife, who's had this experience with this passionate guy who stands on a pulpit and speaks and is, you know, incredibly generous like her father, all those are endearing. But now I lose my temper, not with anybody, but I'm pissed with myself. Her equation becomes, you're going to beat me. And I had to recognize that I triggered that and go in and say, listen, here's the deal. I'm a passionate guy. That's not going away. And, I, and the, the person I am ever going to be most pissed at is ever going to be myself because sometimes I just do dumb shit that upsets me. But I will never, ever strike you. That's not even an option. In my, my father used to beat my mother. So, you know, that, that was pretty much decided for me pretty early on. I'm never going to do that. Um, but I had to be careful and be aware that my, my temper is that trigger. She had to learn on the other side of it that it doesn't automatically mean that. So when my wife behaves in a way that my father or my mother would be, I have to know that it doesn't mean what it meant with my mom and dad. When I behave in a way that her mother or father might be, it doesn't mean that I will be or I am what her mother or father would be. So that's part of how our love equations work and more importantly, the evolution of them. Because you can't get rid of the original emotional source code, but you can change the anatomy of meaning.
And this is why communication is so paramount. And that if you're feeling yourself being triggered, that to say, pause, this is this experience is creating this memory or this. And sometimes we don't remember why we're even having the feeling, but to just say, I'm having this feeling, I need to step back and evaluate it before things get all out of control. It's, it's tricky though. It's tricky to, to have that moment of clarity. It is very tricky in that moment mm. because you're not in a moment of clarity. You're in your amygdala. You're in your reactive brain, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to develop systems for that because if you look at your partner and go, well, you're triggering me, that's a good way to piss them off. Mm-hmm. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Right. Right? So what we, my wife and I do couples training. We teach couples training uh, and we do it privately. We used to do it for Uh, the public, but now we only do it for private couples. And one of the things we say is that you've got to have the tools in the toolbox to deal with the thing at the time. But one of the first tools is don't try and work it out while things are hot. You got to let things cool down. So you need a set of signals. You need a set of tools to do that. Safe words. Sorry? Safe words. Safe words. Exactly. We, We call them codes. You develop a code. What is the code, right? So if the code is pineapple, it's like, just don't, don't talk to me right now, right? I'm pissed. Don't talk to me. I know it's not you. You've triggered it, but it's not you. I got that. So pineapple, whatever it is, right? Um, but that, so first thing you can do, and I teach this people all the time, I teach it with them any form of anxiety, is a double breath in and a hold and a double breath out. Hold. Long, slow breath out. So you breathe in and you feel like you're full, but breathe in again, there's more room. Hold it for the same amount of time and then breathe out as slowly as you possibly can. It moves the brain's blood from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. Under stress, you are 27... Now listen to this. Under stress, we are 27% dumber than we are when we're not in stress. And that's because the under stress with a flood of cortisol... And adrenaline, 27% of the blood flow to the prefrontal cortex is cut off. Mm. By doing the double in, hold, breathe out. And if you do three rounds of that, you bring the blood flow back. You may not bring all of it back, but you'll bring enough back to make you go, okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. And that's all it takes. And we call it the pause. How will you create the pause? Mm. Because if you don't create the pause, you'll create the reaction. And the reaction will never work out well. Mm-mm. So, it's great advice. It's just a simple technique. And mm-hmm. and by the way, if you like, I have anxiety. If you have an anxiety attack, use that. It works beautifully. I can pull myself out of an anxiety attack with that. So I'm for the first. Uh, I've been speaking thirty nine years. For the first thirty three of those years, I had zero anxiety about going on stage. Zero. Any stage, anywhere, it doesn't matter. A million people, I'm fine. Now I have massive anxiety before I go on, but I'm not going to let it get in the way. Why do you think it came later? Because uh, of PTSD. Mm. I had a PTSD experience and it triggered it. My house burned down with me asleep in it. <laughs> my wife and I were in bed and the house burned down. Oh my gosh, do they know what caused the fire? Oh yeah, it was a faulty boiler in the oh. basement. And How so, terrifying. Yeah, so... But you see, my wife was far healthier than me in that the house burned down. I mean, she was a rock star in the moment. Um, by the time 
she screamed and I jumped out of bed, she was already running downstairs, getting all the hard drives, getting the passports and running outside in a dressing gown and nothing else. Uh, and uh, I was barely getting my jeans on. But um, in the month that followed, she was a wreck because she's healthy. She was crying. She was sad. You know, we'd lost everything. We lost the house. Um, there was all kinds of memories, blah, blah, blah. But it was gone. And she was, she felt all of that. I, on the other hand, went into do mode. I'm great. It's fine. Let's have, make things happen. We'll find a place here and we'll go there and we'll do this. And I went into that mode. And that was November. And I was on tour at the end of February on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast. I was on the East Coast. And... Uh, did my first gig that was felt a bit weird. I went to do the second gig and felt like I was being an elephant was sitting on my chest and called my buddy in the UK and said, uh, who's a hypnotherapist. I said, you gotta help me. I, I can't, I can't go out. And he walked me through and I got through. Um, and it was all the PTSD from the fire. Mm, I'm sorry that happened to you. That's horrifying. Yeah. That, and you also fell off a fucking mountain. So what happened there? Uh, so the falling off the mountain was in 1990. Um, I was probably the most successful I'd been up until that point. So I was on tour. I was speaking. I'd spoken in every major city of Australia. Um, I'd spoken in most of the major cities of Canada and certainly in the northern U.S. Um Things were going great, um, but I was an adrenaline junkie for sure. That was I was mainlining adrenaline. I would ride around in the front of the car while my mate drove at high speed, and you know we would do stupid shit. Um, and uh, on this particular day, I was exhausted, burned out, and my manager said, "I booked you four days away. You're going up to Whistler, and we were just going camping." A mate of mine. Um, Whistler is where the Winter Olympics were held for 2010 and I live in British Columbia so it was like okay so we got up there and it had been a very wet spring but it was uh, was nice it was June it was nice it was sunny and we went to a place called Brandywine Falls which is this magnificent glacial falls it's 200 foot it's gorgeous and I said to my mate let's hike down there's no path let's hike down so we hiked down uh which is about a 45-minute hike down, not up, but down. And um, we get to the bottom, and I say, let's see if we can get behind the waterfall. He's like, what? And I go, yeah, there's a gap between where the cliff is and where the water comes off the glacial fall, right? And he's like, okay, because he's also an adrenaline junkie. So we're not dressed for it. So we're walking across slippery, mossy rocks, and we finally get behind there. And when you're in that environment, there is so many negative ions that it positively charges your body, and it, it's a complete insane high. Like, it's the best high. So when I came out on the other side, I was like, I felt like freaking Superman. I always felt completely indestructible. So I said to my mate, let's not hike back. And he's like, well, what are we going to do? We're not going to camp here. I said, no, let's not hike up. And he goes, we're going to take the elevator. I'm like, no, let's climb. Now, if you don't know what climbing is, you might think that mountain climbing is kind of crazy. It's not. If you're trained, you've got the right gear, you've got the right equipment, you've got ropes, you've got safety lines, you've got all kinds of stuff. Free climbing is definitely a little crazier. 
but you're dressed for the occasion. You have chalk. You've, you've planned your route. You know what you're doing. Uh, we were doing none of those things. We were soaking wet, climbing up a rock face. And about halfway up, I could, my mate was directly behind me, so he's in, my, he's in my kick zone, meaning he's getting all the dirt. And I can hear him complaining, and, I, and listen to this. You know, talk about prophetic. Talk about talking to myself and not listening. I said to him, you don't have to come this way. This is the hard way. That was how I'd been living my life, going the hard way. And at about 120 feet, I reached for a rock. That rock dislodged a bigger rock that hit me in the face, bam, and knocked me down at maximum velocity. Um, knocked backwards, and I clipped the edge of an, of an, out, uh, an, out, an out jutting, and it flipped me over, and I landed on my face on the boulders below. Got smashed to pieces. My jaw was broken into five separate pieces. My both cheekbones were gone. The nose was gone. There was just a little bit of my forehead actually on this side that was not touched. Um, I looked like mashed. And I can tell you the gory details. You don't need to know them. Uh, but it was 12 reconstructive surgeries later. Now, let's go back a bit because let's remember who I was. Identity, right? Um, I was born in a ghetto in northern England. Violence, crime, abuse, all the things I talked about last time. Um, I became a boxer and a martial artist and a bodybuilder. I'm tough, right? That's the identity. You're not keeping me down. So even though I died five times in the journey between the fall and leaving the hospital, and there's a whole bunch of stories in and of that, but when people would say to me, how are you doing? You know, I, was, I lost 50 pounds in three weeks. And people said to me, how are you doing? Face all mangled and kind of, and I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back. With my jaw wired closed. I'm great. I'm coming back. I was a liar. That was the tough identity, right? And I, my mates were great. They'd be like, you know, well, let's go out Saturday night. And they'd take me out. And I'd be how the hell quiet. did they get you out of there, first of all? How did well, they smuggled get... me out of the hospital. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, how did they get you out of the, the rocks? Oh, so I was, like I said, I was climbing with a friend. Yeah. And um, so somehow through the mush that was my face, I, he understood that I told him to move me. You don't move people who have fallen. No. And he said, instinctively, I picked you up and I moved you. And he goes, I only moved you like four feet. And immediately the rock face buried that place that I was laid in. Like I told you, there's a lot of mystical stories in this. Um, then he said, I'll get the ambulance on it. Somehow I said, no, I'm, I'm walking. And I had a bone sticking out of my leg. And uh, I, can, I can't remember much about it, the walk, but I can remember the sound of the, uh, walking in water or mud, and it's the blood in my shoes mm. that's soaked, and I'm sort of walking in this sludge. Um, I remember... Um, seeing an orange light. So it took three hours for me to get out. There was a, halfway up, my buddy ran ahead to call an ambulance because it's out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, then they came and got me. I didn't make it to the very top, but they came and got me and got a stretcher and got me out. Uh, I was taken to the first hospital with the, all the damage to my face, uh, broken clavicle, broken legs, um, broken back, broken neck. Um, they got me to the 
Mountain Hospital looked at all the x-rays and said, well, we can't deal with you. We've got to ship you to the city. In the trip to the city, which is an hour at high speed, um, mm. I would come around for maybe 10, 15, 20 seconds, uh, you know, going in and out of blacking out with incredible pain. And I'd remember what my teachers had taught me, my uh, Vedanta teachers and my Buddhist and Taoist teachers, and even my Kabbalah teacher had taught me. And I'd remember these little flashes of their teachings would come to me, and I would start putting them into, into my mind. When I got to the second hospital, they x-rayed me, and there was nothing broken below my face. They didn't understand the x-rays that showed otherwise, but they also refused to show those x-rays to my doctor. My doctor actually requisitioned them and they said they've been destroyed. So there's Wait, all I kinds of... No, nobody understand. understands. It's a miraculous story. We don't know. So your compound leg fracture had set itself? There was no fracture. The, my neck wasn't broken. My clavicle wasn't broken. My wow. back wasn't broken. My neck wasn't broken. Nothing was broken below my face. So I like to say, I fell 120 feet from a self-imposed pedestal and landed on my ego. Oh my God. That's why the rest didn't need to be broken. I had to land on my ego. So it was pretty messy. Um, <laughs> but the next nine months when people would ask me, how are you doing? I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back. Do you have recollections of dying? Oh yeah. Not all of them, but some of them. One of them, I was in the hospital. Um, my daughter had flown over from the UK. She was 14. And this is, you know, I remember a bit of this, um, but not all of it. Um, but she told me what she experienced. Um, she said it was like a movie, Dad. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you know, in a movie where things are all noisy and you can hear everything going on and then suddenly it gets quiet? I said, yeah, she goes, that's what it was like. She goes, I was sitting there next to you. You had all these drips and stuff in you. She goes, and I looked at you and it suddenly went quiet. And I saw what I thought was like smoke beginning to come out of your chest. She goes, and I knew it was your spirit. And I screamed, no. And the smoke went back in. And I opened my eyes and said, Hello. And she said, don't leave, Dad. And I said, okay. That's one of them. Another experience, you know, people talk about, you know, the light and the, oh, you know, and your rallies are all waiting for you. No, I remember very dark parts of that journey, um, battling to get back inside of my body, um, battling with dark forces that I'm not saying are real, I'm saying, you know, maybe figments of my own imagination, but battling and making the choice that I was not done. Hmm. But like I said, during the recovery, my mates would take me out and have these great nights out, and I would pretend that I was fine. Sneaking you out of the hospital. Yeah, they sneak me out of the hospital. And I pretend I was fine. Uh, but I was miserable. I was darkly, darkly depressed, but I wasn't going to let anybody know. And then one night I went out with the lads and I felt like I had a good night. I actually laughed a couple of times and it was genuine. And I thought, all right, maybe I am coming back. This is good. And I opened the kitchen door 
come in the back way, open the kitchen door, and the light from the, the porch shone into the kitchen. And on the floor, I could it, the, it, it smelled horrible. And on the floor, I could see festooned garbage everywhere. There were empty cans, coffee grinds, uh, kitty litter. I mean, it was just everywhere. It was disgusting and it was gross. And I went from being in joy for the first time to being enraged. Completely enraged. I knew exactly who the culprit was. And I wanted to kill. There was no... It's not a metaphor. I wanted to kill. And I got into the living room, and there was the culprit, curled up and all comfy on the couch, lifted my hand to strike. And halfway down, something stopped me, because that's not who I am. And instead, I put my hands down and lifted my cat into my arms, pulled this cat to me, and he was cold, and he was dead. The cat had died that night after doing whatever it had done. And I fell to my knees and I began to weep. Not cry, but like the <gasps> weep. And it was probably no more than a few minutes when I realized, why am I weeping? I didn't even like this cat, it wasn't my cat. So why am I weeping? And I realized, I'm not crying for the cat. I'm crying because I died. The identity of who I had been had died. And that was the turning point. That was the dark night of the soul, not the fall. That was the dark night of the fall uh, of the soul where I began to ask, why am I really here? What is my purpose? And I spent the next nine months in a very dark place, not denying it, being in therapy, doing all the things I needed to do, journaling for hours and hours a day, drawing, painting, screaming, beating the shit out of pillows, feeling everything I could feel and wanting to know what is my purpose? Why am I on this planet? And that actually was the, the catalyst for me really understanding how source code works and, and how the anatomy of meaning works and how we build the identity as a bravado, which I had clearly done, and how that's full of shit. And when you get to the soulful level, your life doesn't become about happiness. It becomes about serving and joy. So that's just one of the stories. Incredible. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> wow. Me too. I got to play with my grandchild for about 45 minutes before we came on. Oh, yeah? Congratulations. My youngest grandchild. A new grandbaby? Uh, no, she's 18 months old. The new one is on the way in October. Congratulations. Thank you. That will be number six. Oh my gosh. Good for you. My eldest grandson is 28 years old next month and the youngest one is on the way. So do you use some of, you know, this, this stuff that, you know, do you find that the grandbabies, you know, the ones that are old enough to understand or even your kids that they are shaped by it? Or is this something that you think people have to fall into, not necessarily fall off a mountain to get, but- <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't think that, so there's a saying in the speaker world, a wise man is a fool in his own village. So don't preach in your own village. Um, so I, I don't preach anything. Um, you know, um, my job is to be the model, not to be the teacher. Mm. 
you know, and so my wife will very generously thank me for being a good model for what, what a man needs to be for my sons and what a man needs to be for my daughter. Right. Um, but for instance, uh, my second youngest grandchild, Jane, uh, as soon as I greet her, I don't say, hi, Jane. I go, hey, beautiful soul, good to see you. When I kiss her goodnight at night, she's you know almost 12, I say, goodnight, beautiful soul. Before she leaves to go home, I say, what are you? She says, I'm a beautiful soul. Uh, my grandbaby who's here, um, you know, I always refer to her, you know, I call her by her name or by nicknames, but I kiss her goodnight, beautiful soul. I rem and I stand and I talk to her because I know that her brain right now is a sponge and I remind her how magnificent she is and how beautiful she is and how smart she is and how kind she is and that she is a beautiful soul more than anything. So I, I don't try and teach it. I think it would be foolish to try and do that. I know how, how receptive I was to my parents' knowledge. <laughs> sure. <laughs> parents are idiots and that's all there is to it until they're not. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so that's... I, do I think it shaped them? Absolutely. I think it shaped them without a doubt. Because my, my sons are not my birth boys. They are my stepsons. And my wife looks at them in their relationships and looks at them as parents. And she goes, I know that would not have happened without you being their dad. They refer to me as their dad. Wouldn't it be so. incredible if we all could remember that we are beautiful souls? This, this process yeah. of remembering yeah, and I you know, and again, because the, the the brain is so much a sponge uh, at this age, I don't care if they remember it cognitively. I just care if it's installed. Mm -hmm. Right. So if they don't remember it, but it's installed, they'll operate from that place. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things I remember, but I don't do. <laughs> right. Right. Same. But if it's but if it's installed, that's whole different. <laughs> Right, so I'm my, I'm I'm just doing my best to install that, that it becomes when you're about to do something really stupid or destructive, that you some part of you kicks up and goes, oh, is this the path of a beautiful soul? Hmm, maybe not. Okay, maybe I'll make another decision. I think the the thing is, is with a lot of this kind of of conversation, I think that people listening sometimes feel like, oh well that person is so evolved or that person has this leg up. And the fact that, you know, you say, Oh no, one time I fell off a mountain and landed on my face, you know, or, or, you know, I'm not perfect. And I have had these things happen and life has gone in incredibly wrong. And yet I'm still able to get down this further road. I think people need to hear that and that it mm -hmm. lights the way in darkness. Thank you. Thank you. I do too. I think it's really important that we show our humanity. Yeah, I agree. Right. Dove, as always, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Always. Thank you. I sincerely appreciate you inviting me to be on here with you, to have this discussion. Um, it's an honor. Thank you. And well, I, I genuinely hope that it serves your audience. And I'm going to say this to you, the audience, as you're listening, what I said at the beginning. This is a one-way system. We don't know if you like it or don't like it unless you tell us. So go to Apple, go to wherever you tune into the podcast, rate, review, subscribe to the show, and, and let Susan know, oh, I hated that show. Oh, I love that show. Here's what was great about it. Here's what sucked about it. Here's what I'd like more of. Like, 
we need that feedback. It's important to us because otherwise we're just shouting out into the wind. And, you know, I know Susan and I are here to serve and we want to serve you. And if you want to know about me and if I can serve you, please reach out to me. You can, my direct email, I know it's insane, but my direct email is dov, D-O-V, at dovbaron.com, dov at dovbaron.com. Or you can uh, go to dovbaron.com, which is my website. There's two podcasts, Leadership and Loyalty, Curiosity Bites. And on top of all that, uh, about a thousand videos on YouTube. And I write for Medium. You'll find that at The Curious Leader. And just Google D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N. You'll have more than you can cope with. Absolutely. And Dove has, uh, is great with social media. You have a lot of really wonderful content on Thank Instagram, you. on Twitter. So you're definitely out there in the world. Thank you. Making it better. I hope. Reminding people that they are beautiful souls. That's it. We are all beautiful souls who have lost our way, but it is still our way. And if you can just ask yourself that question in your shittiest moment, is there a part of me that can remember that my nature is that I am a beautiful soul? I just did this shitty thing, but can I remember that? Well, it can't be true because I just did this shitty thing. No, it is true, but you forgot it in that moment. But it's, it's your touchstone. It's the place you can always come back to and say, all right, that is my core. At the core of everything else, before the emotional source code, before the anatomy of meaning, before the identity, before the beliefs or the behaviors, You were and you will always remain a beautiful soul. And that part of you is untouchable. The world cannot touch it. Politics cannot touch it. Shitty relationships cannot touch it. It is is untaintable. It is magnificent. And that is the truth of who you are. So remember that. Recall that. Remind yourself of that. And if you can't, then remind other people of it. Because every time you remind somebody else of it, maybe you'll remember a little bit of it yourself. Amen. That's beautiful. Thank you, Dove. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.